0: Hebrews chapter number 10. Well, for the past three nights, we have been studying a theme throughout the Word of God, and it's we've been centering on a phrase that's found four times in the Bible. Uh, it's found once in Habakkuk, chapter number 2, uh, and then it's found again in Romans, chapter number 1, then it's found in Galatians, chapter 3, and then it's found tonight in our text verse here in Hebrews, chapter number 10, and that phrase is the just shall live by faith. And what we've done is each night we've taken and examined that phrase in the context, and we've noticed just simply some some consistencies and similarities, some truths, and sort of dug into this concept of uh, of faith in the life of the believer. One commentator made note, well probably not just one, probably hundreds, I guess, because pretty pretty familiar thought to to notice that if you look at the three New Testament usages of this phrase, you'll find that they in many ways encapsulate three different aspects of this phrase. For instance, Romans deals with this thought, the just shall live by faith. And it deals with justification by faith. Now by that we mean being made to be in a right condition with God. You know, a familiar phrase we could use to summarize that is to be saved. A person gets saved uh, by grace through faith. And faith is the grounds upon which a person can come to God. Now, that may seem obvious. I hope it seems obvious to you. But the sad reality is even to a great many people that would say that is an obvious truth, uh, many of them, maybe most of them, are trusting in their good works to get them to heaven and uh, so the apostle paul spends time in romans chapters number 1 through 4 uh, addressing this this error and this problem this heresy of uh, of works based salvation And then in Galatians, the emphasis is on the just shall live by faith. In other words, that faith is not only the operative principle in a person coming to God, but it is the operative principle in their life, in their relationship with God going forward. Now, I want to be clear what I mean by that. I'm not suggesting that our faith keeps us saved. And I think that oftentimes that is a nuance that a lot of people fall into, an error that they fall into, is that, well, if I'm not holding to the faith, then I lose my salvation. There is no such teaching in the Word of God. The Bible's abundantly clear that it's not our faith that saves us, it's Christ that saves us. But we approach unto Him by faith. So, well, what does that mean? It means that I place my faith in Christ. And then I may have lapses of faith in my life, crises of faith that I experience. I may have days that I'm just not leaning upon him the way that I should. But I am sealed unto the day of redemption by the spirit of God. I am saved eternally and irreversibly by his grace. But rather what Paul is dealing with is that the, the metric of our commitment to God and the means of our walk with him continues to be by faith. It's not I get saved by grace through faith and then the rest of my life is about me trying to, in the energy of my own strength, do good works because those will please God. But rather that the works that I do or the things that I do for God are the expression of and the outgrowth of my faith in Him. I continue to walk by faith and not by sight. So we looked at the pardon of faith in Romans chapter number 1. And we looked at the practice of faith in Galatians chapter number 3. Before we get to our text, I'll mention the very first usage, Habakkuk. And we looked at how Habakkuk's crisis of faith in many ways encapsulates and presents in germ form all three of these New Testament ideas. Uh, and so Habakkuk talks about how though God's wrath is coming because of his relationship with God and his effectual dependence upon God, that he would be spared from God's judgment. Reminding us of uh, of Paul's teaching in Romans chapter number one, the pardon of faith, that he was justified or right with his creator through faith. Then in chapter 2, we see Habakkuk uh, quieting himself and trusting the Lord to teach him what he's to do in a day of great wickedness and impending judgment that God will send upon the people of Israel. So we see him walking by faith, or in other words, the practice of his faith. And then in chapter number three, we find him transcending his doubts and rejoicing in God by faith for what God is going to do. And it closely correlates with our text here in Hebrews chapter 10. And we have this thought in mind, the power of faith. Or what can faith accomplish? What is the capability of faith? So let's begin reading in chapter 10, verse number 32. We'll read down to verse number 39 and then we'll pray. The Bible says, "But call to remembrance the former days, in which, after you were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath a great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For ye had a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of The soul let's pray father. We love you. Thank you for the word of God teach us tonight Make us more like Christ and show us more of him and we'll be sure to thank you lord We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen Let me say a quick word about faith in the life of the people that Paul is writing to because i'll tell you We're going to very quickly move into chapter number 11 and just expound the entirety of that very lengthy chapter but our text is not found in chapter 11. It's found in chapter 10. And I want to remind you of who Paul is writing to. I've often said, and I've talked through the book of Hebrews on several occasions, the book of Hebrews, one of the great debates has been, who is the intended audience of the book of Hebrews? Now, the easy answer is Hebrews, right? Uh, Jewish uh, individuals. But the question then becomes, are, is Paul writing to saved Jews? Is he writing to Jews that are not saved but are considering believing on Jesus Christ? Or is he writing to Jews that while having been saved for a long time are still immature in their faith? In other words, is he writing to Jews that are standing at the door of salvation, getting ready to walk through? Or is he standing at Jews who have just stepped through the door and have now been hit like a thunderbolt with what they've done. And now they're, they're being uh, intimidated by the prospect of all that that means in their life. Or is he writing to Jews that stepped through that door and then put a couch there? <laughs> and they never grew in their walk with the Lord. They just, they believed on Christ, were saved, and then they've stagnated. And you say, well, preacher, which is it? And my answer is yes. All right. In other words, we try to draw boundaries that the Word of God doesn't necessarily draw. And Paul does not distinguish particularly any individual of those three groups, but there are portions in the book of Hebrews that seem to apply to all three. One of the things I love about Paul's writings, and it'll help you to understand the Pauline epistles when you study them, Paul never took for granted anyone's relationship with God. He never Now, he would tell them, if you do this, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But in writing to people, he never took for granted or assumed that their profession was genuine or sincere, but rather he always trusted that work to the Holy Spirit. I think there's a valuable lesson there for us as we deal with people about their salvation. Uh, You won't have to tell them they're saved. God will tell them they're saved. You tell them how to get saved. But you let God do the work of confirming in their heart the sincerity of the decision that they've made. And that seems to be what Paul has done. And, and he's writing to individuals... Uh, Of all three different categories, I think. And now, the people he's writing to and has in mind in Hebrews chapter number 10 are obviously saved individuals. He talks about them being illuminated. He talks about them uh, having a relationship with the Lord, doing the will of God. He says in verse 39, We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And yet he describes these individuals as, as after they got saved, enduring a great fight of afflictions. He's trying to cast their memory back to what it was like when they cast off the yoke of Judaism, turned their back. And you have to understand, for a Jew to believe in Jesus Christ, they weren't just going to, new, to a new church. They were turning their back on everything they had known. I mean, religion was so interwoven within the ethnic and cultural identity of Jews that when they believed on Jesus Christ, what did the family do together? Well, they went to the temple together. Well, they celebrated Old Testament feasts together. I mean, even today when you talk to practicing Jews, uh, you know, all of their family events and activities all center around the observance of Jewish holidays. And so for a person to believe on Christ at this time, or even for a Jew to do so today, would often mean a complete abandoning of all that they had ever known. And he's reminding them how, that after they believed on Christ, they had had to step out in faith. And they didn't just step out in faith in believing on Christ, but they stepped out in faith in professing themselves Christians. They turned their back on everything. And they endured great abandonment, great affliction, great persecution in their life. In other words, they're struggling now today. And he's wanting to point back to how by faith they had trusted God in a far severer storm that they had gone through before. He is framing their mind, he's priming it for this great retelling of the things that faith has accomplished because he's talking to people that they're not wavering in their salvation because praise God, my salvation is not dependent upon me and it's not something that I waver on or in. But as far as my consecration and my commitment to Christ... I absolutely can waver and you absolutely can waver. And he's writing to these Jews who have all this pressure on them. They believed on Christ and they're wavering. And he's wanting to encourage them with this simple thought. By faith, you can do it. By faith, you can walk with God. By faith, God can use your life. Cast not away your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. He's saying, don't give up. Don't quit serving God. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't compromise your liberty that you have in Jesus Christ. And this passage serves as a doorway to chapter number 11. And Paul is in chapter, and I'm going to keep saying Paul, because I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you don't believe that, that's fine. Everybody's entitled to be wrong. And you're welcome to, uh, when you're teaching VBS, you can say it any way you want. But uh, I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And so, in chapter number 11, Paul is going to go down. We often call it the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith. And he's going to go down and he's going to talk about all the great things that were accomplished by faith. And so looking at chapter number 11, I want to share with you uh, about four thoughts tonight. uh, And I just want us to deconstruct this chapter and just take a few thoughts from it that might encourage our hearts in the Lord. Let's begin in verse number 1 of chapter 11. We'll just read the first three verses. And I want to talk to you first off about the reality of faith and what faith is. The Bible says this in verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders, and he's talking about the Old Testament saints, by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, this verse, particularly verse 1, has drawn lots of attention ever since it was pinned down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'll be honest with you, I could spend the rest of the 45 minutes we have just talking about that verse, just, just deconstructing and unpacking that verse. But I want you to notice instead what I think is the essence of Paul's point in declaring it. Now, here we have the definition of faith, what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. In other words, when the heart fixes itself upon a matter and hopes in it, and by the way, the word hope in your Bible is not an anemic word. We think of it as very anemic, like like I I would like for something to happen, but I seriously doubt that it will. You know. Well, I, I hope this happens, but hope in the Bible is not an anemic word. It has to do with the heart fixing in confidence upon a matter. The Bible talks over and over again about our our blessed hope and about the hope of consolation and about the hope that we have. In the Lord, in fact, hope is so strong that Paul will say about Abraham that he, against hope, believed in hope. When he had nothing to hope for in the sense of how we normally use the word, when rationale and reason had abandoned his hope, when, when he really had nothing, nothing, the circumstances did not lend themselves to that, he put his hope in God and he anchored himself on the person and character of who God is, that God never lies and keeps his promises. So hope is not an anemic thing. But hope is an activity of the heart. Uh, Hope is something that has to do with the mind being convinced of a matter and the heart resting in the reality of it. Faith is the substance of that. In other words, faith is what gives action to that. Now, oftentimes we'll use faith in a very generic term. We'll, we'll talk about, I've defined faith as the effectual uh, dependence upon God's word and his promises. And that's true. That's very true. But understand that that Paul, he's took the cover off this thing and he's looking at the guts of what faith is. He's not speaking in broad generalities. He is He is distinguishing so much so that he distinguishes between faith and hope itself. And so while it would be appropriate to say faith is an attitude of the heart, that's true. Uh, Paul is using it in this context to say faith is what gives traction to the things that we hope for. Or we might say this that if hope is is the conviction of the mind that faith is the commitment of the mind. That if, if hope is the is the conviction of the heart that faith is the commitment of the heart. That if hope is saying i know this to be true faith is saying Because of that, I will respond in an appropriate way. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Therefore, it is the evidence of things not seen. People cannot see the things in your heart and in your mind. But as your faith gives expression through your actions, people can see that you believe in some things. James uses... Uh, the, the concept of faith in this way in James chapter number two when he talks about faith and works and he talks about how that, you know, a man can say, I, I have faith and another man can say, I have works and one can say, look, can look at the other and say, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, saying that though you may genuinely believe absent of works, I have no way of seeing that belief but you can see my belief because I respond based or predicated upon that belief. So Paul is defining faith. But I want us to instead back out a little bit and just notice what I think is the real reason he even says this. And that's because, number one, when we're talking about the reality of faith, we could say this, that faith is fundamental. Faith is not something that is the icing upon the substantial cake of the Christian life. Faith is the substance. Faith is the essence. Faith is not just something for superstar Christians that decide they want to be extra devoted, but faith is actually, it's the meat, it's the life, it's the breath of what causes us or enables us to live the life of Christ around us. Faith is not optional. Faith is not even just recommended. Faith is required if we are to live in the way that God would have us live. So we could say this, talking about the reality of faith, number one, it's fundamental. But then notice verse 2. The Bible says, For by it the elders obtained a good report. What exactly does he mean by that? Well, he says the elders. And he's going to tell us who that is here in a moment. In fact, in verse 3, he's going to begin with sort of a pattern of phrase that is going to be used uh, many times throughout the rest of this chapter. He's going to talk about through faith and and by faith, that things were accomplished and things were were done. And he's going to enumerate all the Old Testament Heroes of faith. So the elders he's talking about, he's talking about the the fathers of the Hebrew faith or the elders of the Hebrew faith. We could say it this way. He's talking about Old Testament saints. And then he says this. They obtained a good report. What does he mean by that? A good report. I remember growing up and I don't know. I guess schools still do this. I have no idea. We had report cards growing up. And uh, a report card was a testimony of the amount of effort and of how smart you were usually. Now, we, I didn't like it when report card time came. A report is a testimony, a testimony. In other words, Paul's going to give us the rest of Hebrews 11 is going to be a report card on these Old Testament saints. He's going to talk about all the things that were done by faith, by them and through them in their life. But before he ever begins that, he says this. Here's why faith is so important. Because by it, Old Testament saints obtained a good testimony and a good report. In fact, he he could say it this way: that faith—it's it, not only fundamental; it's paramount. Not only that, but it's proven. Or we could say it this way: it's not only fundamental; it's fruitful. It's effective. Faith works, man. I mean, you you know, we we have had our minds so scrubbed of of—I don't even want to just say biblical history, but but of spiritual history. And by that, I mean. You know, you go from the close of of old or of scripture in in you know John on the Isle of Patmos in in AD 90, and you go from the close of of the scripture until this present day, and there is literally untold millions of examples of God doing amazing things through people having faith and being faithful to Him. If you don't own one, I encourage you. You don't even got to buy it. Get go get on the library online and borrow one and read Fox's Book of Martyr and just read about the incredible things that people did through their faith in God. Much of that has been scrubbed from the current modern cultural zeitgeist and psyche, but we don't even have to go to those extra scriptural testimonies. Here in Hebrews 11, God preserved eternally for us a good report of incredible things that were done by faith to remind us that faith works. It works, it changes lives, it transforms lives. Why do we do what we're doing this week? You know, we've got, I don't know how many kids are over there. We had 75 the first night, and 83 the second night, 75 the third night. And looks like it might be a little low tonight with the storms coming in. But you know, why do we do this? Why does our church do this? And you understand, and, and, and I'm not being complaintive because God meets every need. But you understand that in a secular or humanistic sense, it doesn't benefit our church at all. It costs us mountains of money, takes a ton of energy, takes a ton of time. I love vacation Bible school, our workers love it, but there's not a single person here whose flesh wouldn't enjoy more sitting at home in the recliner and not doing it. Why do we do that? Well, because we believe faith makes an impact in people's lives, and particularly faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith, it's not just fundamental, it's fruitful, but then look at verse number three. He says this, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It's interesting because before he ever talks about any other great step or act of faith in this chapter, he begins by talking about an act of faith or a step of faith or a feat of faith in your life and in my life. I want to take my own advice and the Apostle Paul's and I won't presume anyone's relationship with the Lord here tonight. I know that I'm saved because of the grace of God and because of the testimony of Scripture, but I won't presume anything about your life. But I would venture this guess that probably all of us, whether it's true or not, everybody in the room would probably at least say, yeah, preacher, I'm saved. I'm saved. I believed in the Lord. And by that very statement, you have expressed a feat of faith far beyond anything that Paul will further describe. You know what you've done? You have believed that God created the world's. You believe there's a God in heaven, that he's interested in humanity, that he created all this that we see around us, and that he is so interested in humanity that he sent his own son to die on the cross of Calvary so that you could be saved. Why is Paul invoking this thought before he ever gets to the rest? Well, he wants us to understand this. Faith is foundational. He will go on to say in verse number 6 that without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And one of the things Paul's wanting to really drive home for us is that we are all to some greater or lesser degree accepting of the concept of faith in our life. I talked about this at the beginning of the week, but everything that we do in many ways is an exercise of faith. You're sitting under this roof because you trust it was built correctly. You're sitting in that pew because you trust it'll hold you up. You got in your car and spun the key because you trust it or pushed the button whatever because you believed that it would start. We, every day of our lives, exercise faith. Faith, and and we find that the modern secular world wants to sort of, it, it wants to do th- two things. One, it wants to stamp a copyright upon the word science. And we found <laughs> that their uh, you know copyright trademark version of science is not so scientific. But then the other thing that it wants to do is brand irrational or unreasonable over the word faith the reality is every single person, whether they know God or not, operates and exercises with some semblance of faith. And certainly if you're saved by the grace of God, you have taken a a phenomenal step of faith in this that you have believed. You weren't there when the worlds were created. You weren't there where God spun uh, everything out into the midst of nothing and created all things. So why do you believe that's true? Or how do you believe that? Well, you came to that conclusion through faith. He wants you to understand that For a person to have any relationship with God, they're going to have to have faith. It is impossible to have a relationship with God outside of faith because you've never seen God. So if you accept the existence of God, that in and of itself is a great leap of faith. So he's dealt with these three truths about the reality of faith. It's fundamental. It is essential to the Christian walk. It is fruitful. It works. And it is foundational. Without it, we cannot know God, and without it, we will not live for God. He begins in verse number 4 and goes, oh man, all the way down to verse number 38, although there is a parenthetical portion that we're going to look at separately. And he begins to talk, he moves on from the reality of faith, and begins to talk about the, the record of faith. And he's going to go through and he's going to describe faith in the life of the believer in three different eras. Now part of the reason Paul's doing this is because in Paul's day as well as in our day, there are some that would suggest that faith is only relevant in this dispensation of grace. After Calvary, that's when, when faith was was effective or active or, or the, the the premise upon which man approached God. And Paul rejected that out of hand, dismissed it entirely in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Colossians. (laughs) I mean, over and over again, he makes it clear that faith has always been the means whereby a man approached unto God. So he's going to give us three different eras. Here's how I'm going to describe it. He's going to first give us the enumerated catalog of the faithful. And he's going to describe three eras. I'll go ahead and give them to you. If you're taking notes, you can mark it down. In verses 4 through 7, he's going to talk about faith in the archaic era we could use another big expensive theologian word, antediluvian, prior to the flood or leading up to the flood. In other words, in the ancient world, we see faith active. Then he's going to talk about faith in the Abrahamic era. In other words, in the era of the patriarchs, when God was dealing with Abraham and with a family. And then he's going to move on. He's going to talk about faith in the Mosaic era, in verse 23 down to uh, verse number 31. In other words, when Israel went from being a family to being a nation. So what does he show us in this passage? Let's notice them quickly. Look at verse 4 with me. (coughs) The Bible says, By faith, Abel. Abel, being the son of Adam and of Eve, being the brother of Cain. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead yet speaketh. Now, before I even get into this, let me pause and say, I will not say everything I wish I could say about each of these instances. If I did... Uh, We wouldn't be here till eight o'clock tonight. We'd be here till eight o'clock tomorrow morning. But we just have to hit the high points of it. And so what is Paul dealing with in verse number four? Well, he's wanting to point number one to the concept of worshiping by faith or approaching unto God by faith. And he reminds him of of the biblical story of Cain and of Abel. Now, just to give you a quick overview of it, they being the first children born in this world, God had established a precedent when their fathers, Adam and Eve, had sinned in the garden and had eaten of the fruit. God killed an animal, slew that animal, took the skins of it, and clothed Adam and Eve in, that, uh, in those skins. In doing so, it had stayed the wrath of God and enabled them to have some degree, though it was diminished from what it had been before, some degree of fellowship with Him. And so God had set a precedent that what he desired when sin took place was shed blood. Not the blood of humans, but animal blood at that time. And so Abel, the Bible tells us, was a tender of of sheep. He was a raiser of sheep. One of the things that's interesting, you study your Bible, and it's not until after the flood that God tells Noah that all the beasts of the field are for the consumption of man and the sustenance of man seems to suggest that at least God's order of things prior to the flood in the first 1,600 years uh, was that people have a largely vegetarian diet. Thank the Lord that we've been delivered from that. And so why would Abel raise sheep? What good did it do? Well, you know, sheep have a lot of, of, of you know beneficial things. You know, you can shave their, their wool and you can make garments, but remember they lived in a temperate climate. Uh, well, you know, preacher, I mean, you know, there's various things that you can can do with them. You you can have their wool or you can kill them, you can eat them. Man, I love, I love to eat lamb. I mean, I, I love it. it. It's hard to find, it's expensive, but I love it. I love leg of lamb. I love lamb chops. I love, the cuter the better. I mean, I love it. But they didn't eat meat at that time. So why did Abel raise these sheep? Well, for one singular reason. He, knowing he was a sinner, knew that what God desired, because God had said it, was shed blood. And he put faith in God's word when God had said that's what he desired and that's how he approached unto God. Cain, his brother, on the other hand, deviates from that ancient form of approach unto God and instead brings the fruit of of his own hands, of of the labor of of the field. He was a tiller of the ground and and he brought the labor of his own energies and brought it before the Lord. And the Bible says that God had respect unto Abel, but he didn't have respect unto Cain. Now, it wasn't because Abel's sheep were nicer uh, than Cain's tomatoes. Uh, But rather, it was because Cain was operating in his own knowledge and his own wisdom, and his own strength. And put very simply, Cain said, I should be able to bring this to God, even though it's not what God said he wants. He was saying, I don't have to do what God has said. I'll do what I think is best. I'll worship in my own strength instead of by faith. So Paul points to worshiping by faith. Then in verse number five, he tells us about another man, a man by the name of Enoch. Bible says, by faith Enoch was translated, we'll explain what that means in a moment, that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, the testimony of Enoch's life is really not lengthy in Scripture. It's mentioned only on a few occasions. For the very first time, it's in Genesis chapter number 5, when it's giving sort of the, the, the um, uh, lineage of human history, the genealogies there in Genesis chapter 5. And all that the Bible says about Enoch is that Enoch walked with God and was not. We get a little bit more uh, illumination about it here in Hebrews chapter number 11, when the Bible says that God translated him. Now, what does it mean to translate something? Well, it means to take it from one state to another while retaining the essence or the character, the identity of it. When we talk about the translating of the Word of God, uh, when the Bible was translated into English, uh, the criteria of it was this. Did it retain the meaning? Did it retain the truth? Did it retain the definition and the idea? And so, uh, when the Bible describes Enoch being translated, what it's saying is he changed from one state to another or from one place to another. When it says in Genesis 5, he walked with God and was not, what it means is that rather than him having to die, God simply took him to heaven. Translated him from this world to that world. The important part of it, though, is what it says before that when the Bible says he walked with God. In other words, Enoch lived for the Lord. He walked with God in daily fellowship in the way that God desired. When you're walking with someone, you're going the same direction they're going. When you're walking with someone, you're you're going the same pace. When you're walking with someone, you're matching them step for step. And when you're walking with someone, you are traveling in fellowship with them. And so all this is figurative language to suggest that Enoch, instead of walking the way the world was walking, he walked with God. We could say it this way, that Enoch's life reminds us of walking by faith. And Paul's wanting to remind us that this idea of faith being the the perpetual principle of the life of a person that believes in God is not some new doctrine. But you can go all the way back in the Old Testament and see that even Enoch was walking with God, meaning living for God and fellowshipping with God, praying to the Lord, believing God's Word, trusting in Him, and living in the way that God desired. He throws in verse number 6 just to remind us how this is the most natural natural of experiences, because he says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Well, now, why is that? Well, for very practical reasons, he that cometh to God must believe that he is. If you're going to walk with God, if you're going to please God, you're going to have to believe that he is. But then you have believed another thing about God. You've gone from just believing that he is, but you have believed that he's an intelligent God, that he's a God that's interested in humanity. And you've also gone to believe that he is a just God. He is not blind and and, and implacable and malevolent and sadistic and mean and cold and unfeeling. But instead, he's a just God who loves his people and is interested in him because you believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So you see how this, this concept of God in faith is progressing further and further. We see worshiping by faith. We see walking by faith. But in verse number seven, we see somebody working by faith. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Let's pause there and then we'll move on later to the rest of it. What's it talking about? Well, it's talking about Noah and the ark, the universal flood, which, by the way, is neither unscientific nor fairy tale. It is substantiated and established uh, by not just biblical witness, but by sound science that the world has been through a cataclysmic and traumatic Uh, geological event and and climatological event uh, that the Bible describes as being a universal flood. But the thing that I want you to notice is the Bible says he was warned of God of things not seen as yet. Now, most competent science, along with the testimony of the word of God, reveals to us that prior to the flood, it didn't rain in the world. The Bible says that instead the earth was watered by the dew that rose up from underneath. And what the world had over it was sort of a canopy of water that insulated. It's probably a lot of the reason, too, by the way, that, that people lived as long as they did and disease wasn't as rampant as it was. And so two things happened when the flood happened that had never happened before. One of the things that happened is that rather than, than uh, dew coming up from the ground, rain fell from heaven. God had already warned Noah that this would happen. It's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights, Noah. And it had never happened before. Another thing that happened is the Bible says the fountains of the deep broke up. In other words, water didn't just come from above, but water came from beneath and not as gentle dew covering the ground, but as great deluges and floods that came bursting up whenever the earth began to shift and move under the under the movement and weight of all this water that had been placed upon. It. God had told Noah that this would happen. It had never happened before. Noah had nothing by experience to base his building of the ark on but because he trusted God that God does not lie, he began to build an ark. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house. goes on to say, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God didn't impute righteousness to Noah because he built an ark. God imputed righteousness to Noah because he believed God's word. But now his believing God's word naturally produced a movement and a response He was moved with fear. If I told you it's going to rain till it floods, you'd immediately begin preparing. If you believed what I said, you'd immediately begin preparing. You don't believe that? Go try to buy milk when they're threatening even a half inch of snow. I mean, the meteorologist lies far more than God does and even far more than the preacher does. And yet they say half inch of snow and we can't, none of us. I mean, everybody just sitting at home eating milk sandwiches because all the milk and bread is gone. It moves them to action. Why? Because they believed what's been told them. Well, we see Noah likewise working by faith. So we see faith in the archaic era. Then Paul begins sort of a lengthy description of faith in the Abrahamic era. Now what we mean by that is Abraham was an Old Testament figure. He was a Syrian. We think of him as a Jew. Uh, he was the first Jew. He became uh, the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, but the Bible describes him. As a Syrian ready to perish, because you say, well, preacher, what exactly is a Jew? Well, it's a descendant of Abraham. Before Abraham, Abraham wasn't a Jew, Abraham was a Syrian. And God called him out of, out of pagan darkness and he believed on the Lord and God began with him in building a nation. And so Abraham was a Syrian and he was a pagan. And God spoke to him and said, Abraham, I desire to start over humanity, so to speak. Uh, and, and, and sort of the light of my working in humanity in your family, Abraham. I'm going to build a nation. The world has failed, but I'll build a nation. I'll start with a family and build it into a nation, and that will be the hope and help for humanity. And so Abraham believed God. The Bible says that he left his family, and he went out and he departed, went to a place that he did not know where he was going. He just trusted. God said, I'm not going to tell you, Abraham, you just start walking, and I'll tell you when you get there. I practice that same thing with my kids when we go on vacation. Uh, they'll say, where are we going? I'll say, you'll know when we get there. They'll say, are we there yet? I'll say, I'll turn this car right around. But uh, we see Abraham doing several things by faith. Notice them very quickly, verse 8. First thing we see is Abraham departing his home. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. In other words, faith moved him from, from investing in one thing to investing in another. You know, that's what happens when a person gets saved. It's what should happen. We go from investing in this world to investing in a world to come. And while I don't think God requires us to abandon our families, he required Abraham to do it. He had very specific reasons. Certainly, when we believe on the Lord, we now all of a sudden have a new family, the family of God, and we are investing in them. And, you know, I hope that your family continues to love and support you if you believe on the Lord. They should do that if they love you. Uh, But I'll tell you this, even if they don't, you won't be without a family. Because you'll have the family of God. Abraham departed everything that he had known, left it behind him, because God had something better for him. Verses 9 and 10, we see Abraham dwelling in tents. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that's tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Tom would fail me, but one of the, one of the Key principles in Old Testament teaching is the idea of being a pilgrim and a stranger. Paul will use that language later on, being a pilgrim, but the Old Testament saints they constantly lived as though this world was not their home, and It was not just by accident nor was it exercising convenience that God initially had called them to dwell in tents it 's not because there 's something noble about it, but because for them it was symbolic of the fact that this world was not their home, they were just passing through they were sojourners. And they were going to another place. In other words, by faith, what do we do? Well, we pull up our tent stakes from this world. We don't grow too attached to this world. Much frustration in modern-day Christianity comes from people just simply driving their tent stakes too deep. I mean, people just sat around, tore up all the pieces over everything in politics, everything in the economy, everything in society. And I understand it bothers me too. I mean, I get, I get gripped about it and grieved about it. Uh, but we need to remind ourselves, man, This, this, our citizenship is in heaven. This world's not our home. We shouldn't expect it to be right here. It ain't going to be right here till Jesus reigns. So we see him dwelling in tents. Verses 11 and 12, we see him and Sarah as well, depending on his promises. Now, God had told Abraham. Abraham was an old man. And, um, uh, you know, by human reasoning, if you're going to start a, a new nation out of a family, you don't want to do it with old people. But God did do it with old people. He chose Abraham, who at the time of his calling was uh, 75 years old, and Sarah, who was a little younger than him. The Bible says, through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. I love that. It's one of my favorite verses in the Word of God. She judged him faithful. She looked at his record and said, God's never lied. He hasn't lied now. Therefore, spring there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Now, there could be some dispute who it's speaking of when it says spring there even of one. Could be speaking of the deadness of Abraham's body, although Abraham will go on after Sarah's death to remarry and have other children. So it's probably more likely that it's speaking of Isaac and it says as good as dead. And we'll talk about what that means here in a moment in verses 17 through 19. But what it's wanting to show us, what the word of God is teaching us here, is that they, life was brought forth because they depended on the promises of God. Something that was physiologically impossible, biologically impossible. I mean, they were past age. It doesn't just say she looked past age but wasn't doesn't just say she was close to Pat. She was past age. Her body was dead. Her child bearing years were behind her. It was an impossibility. But because they believed God's promises, God gave life to her womb and she bore a child. I don't believe that this is just a blank check that God does this for everybody in life. But God made this promise specifically to Abraham and to Sarah. And because they depended on the Lord, it gave God the room and the 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 ability that he needed. I'm careful in using that word ability. I know he's able to do all things. But I tell you, he could not have given life to her womb if she wouldn't have believed him. Not because God is, anything's impossible to him, but because he does nothing against our will. It took her complicitness. It took her willingness. It took her believing God could do it. But when she did, it gave God the room he needed. To perform a miracle in their life. So we see them depending on God's promises. I love verses 17 through 19. Deep, deep, rich soil here. And I've got to restrain myself because if, if not, I'll go, I'll, I'll preach on this forever and we don't have time. But in verses 17 through 19, we see Abraham delivering his son, sacrificing his son up to the Lord. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. Now Isaac's the son that God had promised them. Isaac is the son that, that by faith they had received. Isaac is the son that all of God's plan is wrapped up in. He that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. I mean, you see, Paul's Paul's trying to drive this into your mind. He's saying he offered up Isaac. Not Ishmael, not the son of the flesh. He offered up Isaac, the only begotten son, meaning the one that God had ordered that this promise be carried out through. The one that that had received the promises, the one that God had told, the one of whom God had said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In other words, all of God's promises and all of God's plans were wrapped up in Isaac. What's going to happen to Isaac? Then one day God calls to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to go up on Mount Moriah. I want you to build an altar. I want you to lay your son on it. I want you to kill him. I want you to deliver him to me. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, a lot of people have misunderstood what happened in that moment. A lot of people have thought that that that, that was uh, the passage is about sacrifice, but it's really not. It's not about him saying, "Oh, I love Isaac so much, but I'm willing to give him up." Rather, look what verse 19 says. Look 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 at the the attitude with which Abraham did this, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Here's what Abraham said. Abraham was not saying, I love Isaac so much, but I love God more, and so I'll live without Isaac. I mean, listen, there's things in our life that that we ought to love the Lord more than and give up for him, and I'm for all that. But that wasn't what Abraham was saying. Those three days that he was marching up that mountain, here's what he was saying. He was saying, I don't know how God's going to do it, but I'll kill him if God wants me to, and God's going to have to raise him from the dead because God cannot lie. This was not an exercise in sacrifice. It was an exercise in faith. And he was saying, I don't understand all of it, but I know God doesn't lie. And he, he said, I love how it says it, from whence also he received him in a figure. He, was, he said this, My, he, he was dead in our bodies and God gave him to us. Our bodies were dead and God gave him to us. So I guess if God could give him to us from our dead bodies, God could give him back to us from his dead body. He was saying, I know that God, even though I don't understand, I know that God will not lie and he trusted him. He moves on from Abraham to Isaac himself. In verse 20, Isaac's an old man. The Bible says this, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, his sons, concerning things to come. Now, we don't have time to do it, but go back and read the blessings that God gave on Jacob and Esau. And not only was the substance of them, they deal with with prophecies of the Messiah coming and of the plan of God. But if you remember, that blessing did not come in the way that we would expect it coming. In fact, uh, God had already said that the elder would serve the younger. And yet Esau, being the older, naturally should have received the blessing. Instead, Jacob steals the blessing away from Esau and Isaac bless Jacob. Esau comes in after that, learns what is done, is outraged. And he begs his father, he says, father, don't you have a blessing for me? And Isaac, rather than saying, well, yes, son, this has all been done incorrectly. Let's nullify Jacob's blessing and I'll give the blessing to you instead. Isaac, seeing that the word of God had been performed, he said, no, Esau. What God has decreed has been done and God's plan is being carried out and we're not going to deviate from it. Here's what we see. We see Isaac declaring God's plan, saying we're going to follow God's plan even when we don't understand it, even when it's painful, even when we don't know what God is doing. We see sort of an echoing of this in verses 21 and 22. He moves on from, uh, uh, Isaac down to Isaac's son Jacob, and he says this, by faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worship leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, a very similar situation, but it was regarding Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of, of Joseph. And Joseph, when he brings them in before Jacob to be blessed, he, he puts one of them, he puts the older, on, on Jacob's right hand, let me, I got to do this in my mind. On Jacob's right hand, so Joseph's left, and puts the younger on Jacob's left hand, meaning Joseph's right. Because that's the traditional way they would have blessed him. The right hand being for the elder, the right hand being for the, the, for the progenitor, for the one that should have gotten the, the, the superior blessing. The Bible describes how that Jacob, though he's an old man and he's dim in his eyes, when he went to bless him, he crossed his hands. And bless them contrary to that because God had prophesied once again that the elder would serve the younger. We have another sort of truth in the same theme in verse number 22. He says this, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. It was typical that whenever bones were put in a resting place, they stay in that resting place. But Jacob... Or Joseph, rather, having carried his family down into Egypt, believed that God would deliver the children of Israel one day from Egypt. And so instead, based upon the promises of God, he told them, when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you. Now, what do both these instances teach us? Well, they see uh, we see faith defying the norms. And, you know, that's part of what faith does in our life. It causes us to live contrary to how the world expects us to live. I've got to hasten. Look with me at verse number 23. We've moved on from faith in the archaic era and faith in the Abrahamic era to now, in verse 23, faith in the Mosaic era. Moses, of course, being the one that God had appointed to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, some 450 years have passed since the death of Joseph. Now the children of Israel have gone from being a family of 70 to being a nation of some 2.5 million people, a slave people in the land of Egypt. God had prophesied that he would deliver Israel as a people from their bondage. In Egypt, And we find in Moses' family and in Moses' actions, we find faith operative likewise. Verse 23, we see faith hiding that which is valuable. It says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. The commandment had been given that all the Hebrew boys were to be thrown into the Nile River, to be drowned, to be destroyed. But because they believed God had a plan for his life, they valued him and hid him away. You know, faith causes us to value the things of God. We see Moses valuing them as well in verse 24. Of course, Moses was then raised in the house of Pharaoh, and you can read in Exodus 2 the whole story, how God providentially ordered for Pharaoh to be found of the daughter of Pharaoh and raised as a surrogate son in Pharaoh's household. But the Bible says in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, more is implied in that than just some teenage temper tantrum. What seems to be suggested is that he was the next in line for the throne because he knew that wasn't the plan of God for his life. He refused even the greatest privileges that the world could have. And we see him by faith refusing. We really believe the word of God and his promises. We will refuse the things the world offers us. Instead, in verse 25, we find him by faith choosing. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Faith will make you choose hard roads sometimes. Why did he do that? Well, because in verse 26, we see him by faith esteeming, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. He believed, though he turned away the crown of Egypt, that the reproaches of Christ were better reward. And, you know, the world doesn't understand why we by faith value the things we do and live the way that we do. Because of that, we see him in verse 27, by faith forsaking. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Uh, There was a bounty out on Moses' head, but instead of trying to stay and defend his name and clear his name, he fled knowing God had a greater plan. He forsook any life he may have had in Egypt and stepped out in faith following the plan of God. The timetable fast forwards a little bit past the ten plagues of Egypt, past the whole episode of God dealing with the uh, Egyptians to the night whenever God instituted the Passover. And it deals with the children of Israel and they were under threat by Egypt on one hand and by the death angel on the other, but we see them by faith keeping, keeping the ordinance of God. Verse 28, through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. They left Egypt that night and the Bible says in verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, as saying to do, were drowned. We find them by faith leaving behind them that life that they had known. <laughs> More time fast forwards into the days of Joshua when the walls of Jericho fell and we see them by faith conquering. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Within those little walls lived a harlot by the name of Rahab who had sent the spies of Joshua that had come in to spy up the land of Jericho away and had trusted that God, because of her faith in Him, would preserve her. And we see her by faith surviving in verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab perish not with them that believe not when she had received the spies with peace. Now, what's the point of all this? Paul will go on. He's described the uh, enumerated catalog of the faithful. But in the next few verses, he describes the innumerable company of the faithful. He says, what shall I more say? He says what I say all the time and what I'm about to say here in a moment for the time would fail me (laughs) to tell of Gideon and of Barak. And of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection." And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. He's gone through this long example to remind these believers, if this could be done by faith, then you too, can live by faith. He's shown us the record of faith, but I want to back up and look very quickly at verses 13 through 16. There's a parenthetical passage here, uh, meaning it sort of breaks from the overall thought process. And he gives this in the midst of describing the life of Abraham and how that faith had activated in their lives and what it had produced. And he shows us the response of faith. I mentioned this a little earlier, but let me retread this for a moment. In verse 13, he makes a statement about these faithful Old Testament saints and he uses a word, he calls them pilgrims. And he gives us what the the pilgrim's perspective is. The person that by faith believes this world is not their home and how that it was their faith that caused them to live as pilgrims, to not invest in this world, but instead to invest in the world to come. Notice their perspective in verses 13 through 14. He says, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them far off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. He's wanting to remind these believers that it is an appropriate biblical perspective to recognize that our life is not what we wish it was here and that that's okay because our life is not here. Our life is hid with Christ in God. He talks about their perspective. Verse 15, he talks about their persistence. He says, and truly, if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. What did they do? They cast out all those old memories and said, no, my life is vested in God, His way, His word, and His work. Because of that, they rested in a promise. Verse 16, He says, but now they desire a better country. Now, when he says, but now, he's not meaning that in a broad sense, but he's saying a person that is a pilgrim has to forget that country that's behind them because now they desire a better country. They've left that behind them and now they desire a better country. And for them, that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. In other words, he's saying that Faith naturally produces a different way of living compared to how the world behaves. Look back with me in verse 39 and 40 and we'll mention it and be done. Notice the result of their faith. So what did that do for them? What did that do in their life and what does that mean for us? Well, verse 39, he points to the product of their faith. He says, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. He's looking at believers that are struggling because they're trusting God and though God is sustaining them, He's not delivering them. And they're struggling because they don't understand why things are not better than they are. And He's saying you think your Christianity is broken, but in fact it's functioning the way that belief in God has always functioned. It's, Christianity is not built to get us to the world. It's built to deliver us from the world and to prepare us for the world to come. It's never been that it's designed to situate us in this world comfortably. He talks about the product of their faith. It did not necessarily deliver them from the sufferings of this world, but here's what it did. It transformed them within those sufferings. And they obtained a good report. Then he says this in verse 40, God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, he's speaking of that in a broad sense. And what he's saying is they did not receive all those promises about the Messiah and about the adoption and about knowing God in that in that personal, intimate way. He's saying, but God was preparing a way and a place for the relationship with God that now you and I enjoy. How do we apply that to our lives? Well, here's what I think Paul's trying to get us to understand. They were a part in a plan. They were not the, the, the totality of that plan. We struggle because we don't. We're not the totality of the plan. We don't see the end of all of it. And I know, I'm just like you are. I wish I knew the whole plan. But we don't get to know the whole plan. Why? Because we're a part of it. We're a portion of it. So here's what he's trying to get them to understand, is that the greatest power is not the power to move mountains. The greatest power is not to leap tall buildings in a single bound. The greatest power of God in our life, and the thing that faith does more for us than anything else, I love how Paul says in the book of Colossians, he talks about being strengthened with all might according to his strength unto all patience and long-sufferingness with joy. Yeah, your faith can do some amazing things, but you know what it can do that's more amazing than any of those great feats those Old Testament saints did? It can cause you to be faithful, to live for the Lord day by day, and to consecrate your life to him. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your word. Help us to dwell in it and may it dwell richly in us. Thank you for what you've done this week. We trust it to you. We praise you for it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.